I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins has been in the hot seat since being sworn into office a month ago. Much of the debate has been about her policy positions, but news broke on Tuesday that raised questions about her ethics. Jenkins has repeatedly said that she quit her job as a prosecutor in the district attorney's office in order to volunteer for the campaign to recall her old boss, Chesa Boudin. Now, it's been revealed that Jenkins was paid more than $100,000 by a nonprofit called Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. The organization she said she volunteered with was similarly named Neighbors for a Better San Francisco Advocacy. Get this, that's an organization that backed the Recall Chase of Boudin campaign. Both groups have the same address and direct ties to the same conservative billionaire. Federal law prohibits nonprofits from participating in political activity. Critics of Jenkins were quick to say the arrangement appeared to be a way for her to volunteer for one arm of an organization while being paid by another arm. The $100,000 payment revealed in an economic interest disclosure Jenkins filed with the city was first reported by the local news organization, the San Francisco Standard. In a statement, Jenkins said, quote, After I resigned from the district attorney's office, I provided consulting services for a few San Francisco-based nonprofit organizations. She continues, quote, I leveraged my career and prosecutorial experience to help provide a new source of income to help support my family and small children. So is Jenkins a prosecutor capable of the balance she's touted since being appointed by Mayor London Breed? Or is she a political operator boosted by conservative interests? I sat down with Jenkins in our Chronicle podcast studio, where I asked her about her policy positions one day before the revelation that raised these questions. It's unfortunate I didn't get a chance to discuss this controversy, but I encourage you to listen with careful scrutiny. If Jenkins is able to weather the storm between now and the November election, a race that she just officially entered as of Monday, these are the ways she has promised to manage public safety in San Francisco. For more on this developing story about Jenkins, follow the Chronicle's coverage at sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app as we learn more. Here is my conversation with new district attorney, Brooke Jenkins. And a quick note before we dive in, that clicking you hear in the background of the audio is our photographer, Bronte Whitpin, snapping photos. District attorney, Brooke Jenkins, pleasure to have you in the studio. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Since you've taken office, you've been really keen to say that balance is really important, that your goal is to move forward with criminal justice reform and hold offenders accountable. And I want to hone in on that reform part of the equation. What are some examples of reforms that you do support? I support moving towards alternatives to incarceration when we can do it responsibly. Um, As a prosecutor on the line, which means in the courtroom for seven and a half years, that was something that I worked really hard to do was to find those cases where it was appropriate and and suitable to put someone in some type of rehabilitation program or vocational program. And I think that has to be emphasized so that we are putting people um, back out into our community prepared to succeed and not simply commit another crime and cycle back into the system. Um, I think the other part of that is making sure that when we take on cases that we are looking at every aspect of that case to make sure that from 
step one, that this person becomes involved with law enforcement, that they've been treated fairly and and according to the law, right? Mm-hmm. And that their rights have been adhered to throughout the time that they have, you know, been in our jurisdiction. And so that starts even when you review a police report. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did the police seem to act appropriately throughout the course of this case? Now that we have it, has it been charged fairly and correctly? And then as it moves through stages of, of the litigation in court, um, are we paying attention to, again, right, being responsible in how we um, observe the rights of the defendants through the process. Mm-hmm. So you have replaced your former boss, former district attorney, Chase Boudin. Are there progressive policies that he did put into place that you did agree with? Yes. So I fully support and supported the the Innocence Commission that he established. Um, I think we can all admit that there have been um, people wrongfully convicted in our society, um, sadly, overwhelmingly people of color um, at a, you know, in Oftentimes, evidence that was either not available or even if it was available, that was ignored. And so we need people to con- to, to continue to um, look at those cases and exonerate those who have been wrongfully convicted. Um, I also believe um, that he did great things with, in, in certain respects, with the, the post-conviction work that was being done. I mean, we all can admit that um, there was a time in our country where crack dealers were being given disproportionate sentences from cocaine dealers, and we need to be making sure that we are balancing out the scales of justice, um, even in cases that have already come come through the system. And so that's work that I want to see continued. So you were appointed by Mayor Lennon Breed, who has just increasingly become more responsible for public safety and criminal justice. She's not only appointed you, but also the police chief and a city supervisor who used to be a former police spokesperson. Can you kind of describe for me, how involved will the mayor be as you fulfill your duties? How would you describe that working relationship? Um, One thing that I want to point out is that she also appointed the current public defender. So Mm -hmm. um, she, you know, has fallen into a space where that's actually dropped into her lap. I don't think it was by any design on her part um, that the previous public defender passed away or that there was this recall um, within the DA's office. Um, In my view, she hasn't been very involved. She appointed me and she has trusted me to do this job. Um, She understands that um, I have had the experience that's necessary to to move this office forward. And so she has offered her support, I would imagine, just like she's offered any other public official in this city because she wants to see the the city move forward. Mm -hmm. But, um, But that's it. And after you were sworn in, you did fire 15 district attorney staffers in a single day. And you said that's because you want to bring in a new management team that's full of prosecution experience. Were those firings about a disagreement over policy views or concern that maybe those former staffers could potentially undermine you or just didn't agree with your appointment in general? I think for the most part, um, this was about the management team in the DA's office. the previous administration chose to have an executive team or a senior management team that was comprised um, almost entirely of people with no prosecution experience, um, which is problematic for many reasons. One um, is that they simply have no experience doing the job, right, and can't train or direct younger lawyers in how to proceed through the through the prosecution process, um, can't train them on what their obligations are ethically as prosecutors, mm-hmm. um, aren't aware of what it takes to 
prove a case in court as a prosecutor, which is very different from what you do as a defense lawyer. And so uh, for me, it was important to restore that prosecutorial experience back to our office. Um, Being a prosecutor by trade doesn't mean you aren't fair, you aren't about reform, and you can't have balance. Um, But you definitely need someone who can guide the office based on experience, just like you would expect in any other type of business or or office. Mm -hmm. So on that note, you've emphasized how important it is for prosecutors to regain discretionary powers. And I want to highlight one policy you said you'd like to bring back, charging some juveniles as adults Research has shown that children prosecuted in the adult criminal justice system are more likely to reoffend than those in the juvenile system. Can you provide a specific example of when it is appropriate to prosecute a juvenile as an adult? So first, what I want to share is that um, what I expressed throughout my time of speaking out on the recall is part of what you said, which is that as a as a DA's office, we have to retain discretion. Um, so because we cannot predict what may happen in the future, you can't predict every type of crime or um, the egregiousness of, of certain crimes as they come down the pipeline. Right. And so you need to be prepared to address, you know, different scenarios as they happen. Um, and for me, uh, all I've said is that There may be instances where a 17-year-old perhaps commits a a very heinous crime that we may have to deal with differently. Um, And it's hard for me to say what that would look like. Um, But the example that I've tried to to use is, um, you know, there was an 18-year-old shooter in the grocery store, I believe, in Buffalo, um, who it was a hate crime against black people, right, Mm -hmm. in that store. He, He went in there seeking to shoot as many black people as he could Mm -hmm. and for people to imagine what if he was six months younger, right. And what it would look like to have to prosecute that case. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the, the best type of example that I can use. Um, But one thing that I want to make clear is as a DA's office, we actually cannot on our own pursue charging a juvenile as an adult that is no longer permitted under the law that, that, law changed several years ago. And so at this time, um, the only avenue available to us is to file a petition where a panel of judges decides whether or not a a particular juvenile is even appropriate to move to the adult court system. Um, But that is a policy that we are still discussing in the office. I have not changed Chase's policy to date Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to have input from the community. I wanted to have input from prosecutors within the office. Um, as well as other stakeholders in the criminal justice system to figure out what's the best way we can move forward where we don't eliminate, right, the opportunity if there's something that happens that necessitates it. But but believe me that I truly understand how disproportionately um, the direct filing it uh, has had, particularly on people of my background, Black and Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, I recognize that we needed change um, and that we still need change in that regard because we've been um, unfairly targeted by the use uh, of the ability to charge juveniles as adults Mm -hmm. unfairly. Mm -hmm. And another controversial policy that has really like lit up your critics is the use of cash bail. And 
your predecessor ended that practice of money bail in San Francisco. We understand that you're still finalizing that policy. But because so many people care deeply about how this policy is leveraged, I want to ask, what can you share about how you plan to use that policy? Um, I've not decided uh, to change his policy at this point. Um, and so that's something, again, that we're finalizing right now. Um, it, you know, what I did announce the other day when I had a press conference regarding um, the new policy with respect to drug cases, particularly fentanyl cases, is that I was going to work within the framework of the no cash bail system in order to seek detention for those who um, have egregious cases with respect to the sale of fentanyl um, and possession of fentanyl for sale. And so there are ways that we can work within that framework for for still what are considered very dangerous um, offenders. Um, And so I'm committed to trying to preserve the sort of the no cash bail system as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And speaking of uh, drug cases, last week, you announced that you were withdrawing plea deals that were previously offered in more than 30 fentanyl dealing cases. You've signaled the need for harsher drug enforcement and penalty, but critics say that when police and prosecutors do it, it impacts poorer communities because it's easier to target visible drug use as opposed to maybe when drug use happens behind closed doors in richer communities. How are you navigating that? Like, it's been well documented, the failures of the the war on drugs. How do you avoid those inequities? So I think it's very easy for people to kind of say war on drugs because it's just something that that rings a bell in people's heads more so than them actually being able to specifically um, highlight any similarity between the the war on drugs and what I'm actually talking about doing. And so I want to make that clarification. Um, again, as a person of color who's grown up in the Bay Area in California, I'm keenly aware that uh, oftentimes it's opioid use, right, that happens behind closed doors in certain neighborhoods, more affluent neighborhoods, um, and that it is harder to catch. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now, what I think people have to acknowledge in this city is that um, it is the lower socioeconomic uh, neighborhoods, right, neighborhoods mostly comprised of people of color, immigrants who are suffering because of the drug dealing that's happening right outside their front doors. And so um, those people deserve to be protected. They don't want to live that way, right? Why should a family in the Tenderloin have to suffer through coming outside and seeing 30 or 40 drug dealers on their street, scared, Oftentimes, people in possession of weapons engaged in not just the sale of narcotics, but in violence because there are turf wars and and other things going on. Um, Why should those children have to walk to school and see that? But yet we expect for them to grow up and not become what they see. And so... um, those are the people that I have an obligation to protect as well and, and to provide them a safe area to live and a safe area to walk outside. Um, and so that's who right now is my focus because it is visible and I do see it and they are crying out for help. Mm-hmm. There's also just been, I think, with the recall election and just the conversations happening in San Francisco, this debate over what a progressive prosecutor means. Some people like to say that you're not one. How do you define it? I define it as somebody who is committed to alternatives to incarceration and who is creative about 
um, what those are alternatives are, who's dedicated to creating avenues for which people can can engage in rehabilitation, because it's really easy to look at a charge and say, OK, you're shipped off to prison. Right. If it's a serious case, um, it's it's more complex and it's it's a harder job to look at the ins and outs of that case and of that person mm-hmm. and say, you know what, despite the charge seeming like something where you naturally should go to prison, that I'm going to give you a chance to do something else. Right. And it may be a very intense um, supervised program that you have to go to for one, two, three years even. But I'm going to make sure that. Um, I prepare you again to reintegrate into society and be successful. And so um, what I believe is that I have a reputation for having done that as a prosecutor. Um, this is not just talk. This is something I've I've lived and I've done um, and built a reputation behind because um, that's what it takes. It's not it's not being a progressive prosecutor is not simply turning turning your your head away from the law. Right. It's not saying I'm not going to enforce the law. It's saying I'm going to figure out different forms of accountability that still get us to the same place, which is public safety. More of my conversation with District Attorney Brooke Jenkins after a quick break. We chatted one day before news broke that Jenkins had been paid six figures by a nonprofit formed by a wealthy donor of the Recall Chesa Boudin campaign. Follow coverage of that unfolding story on sfchronicle.com and the Chronicle app. After the break, Jenkins discusses a number of different issues in San Francisco, including deepening divisions between the city's Black and Asian communities. We'll be right back. You can support Fifth Emission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Let's get back to my conversation with District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. It took place a day before news broke that she had been paid six figures by a nonprofit formed by a wealthy donor of the Recall Chase of Boudin campaign. I also want to touch on San Francisco's jail conditions. There have been reports that they're understaffed, there are poor living conditions. If harsher charges come down for offenders, is there also a priority to improve the humane treatment and management of people in jails? Yes, and I will be working closely with Sheriff Miyamoto to to constantly um, discuss with him what what the trends are that we're seeing um, and what their capacity is. Um, I'm a firm believer that uh, while people are in jail, they they are served best by programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the programs that I've learned about more recently is um, an anti-violence program that that's going on in the jail that I hope is expanded because from what I've heard, they do great work and um, have really assisted a number of young men in really sort of reframing the way that they think. Um, and so that's what I would like to see is is the enhancement of a lot of these programs so that while people are spending time in, in these facilities, either while their cases are pending or as part of, of their sentence, um, that again, we are focused on their rehabilitation so that they can move forward successfully. Mm. And, and San Francisco has had a long history of using diversion. You plan to continue that? Yes, yes. Diversion not only is a state 
mandated, but is also a very useful program. I think it's more appropriate for our low-level offenders, um, and I think it's been uh, abused more recently um, by uh, serious offenders who weren't really a in a position to use sort of the unsupervised nature of it. Mm. Um, but I certainly do think it's a useful program in our system. And how were they abused? Is that just not properly or responsibly reviewing cases, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation? Um, what it really is, is it comes down to allowing serious offenders, violent offenders who were not statutorily eligible to go into those courts um, or into those diversion programs, into them. Um, diversion is a very uh, sort of watered-down version of our um, collaborative courts, per se. Um, it oftentimes just requires somebody to undergo a number of classes. So if you're in parental care diversion, you have to go to parenting classes, and it may require you to undergo 10 of those classes in a certain period of time. You're not supervised while you're out on diversion. Um, you're, you know... That's your one requirement. And for somebody who's committed a very serious and violent offense, um, you know, there's a debate about effectiveness mm -hmm. of somebody just having to undergo something, um, you know, that menial. Since taking office, you've done your community listening tours, and that has included a lot of outreach to the Asian American community in San Francisco, in particular with merchants and other really concerned residents of Chinatown. There's obviously been a lot of fear in the API population because of persistent violence and property crimes. But at the same time, the API community is very large, very diverse. We're not homogenous. And not everyone agrees on increased policing or prosecution. And there are also some very serious concerns at the moment that divisions are deepening between Black and Asian communities in San Francisco. How do you respond to those voices? Um, that's what I'm trying to unify, actually. I think that's a part of what I represent. Um, the amount of support that I have received um, from the, the AAPI community here um, has been overwhelming. Um, and I'm not Asian, and they haven't cared. What they've cared about is whether or not I understand what it is that they're going through and what they're feeling. Um, and I think one thing that I've told them is that I will try to serve as a bridge between the two the two cultures, right? The two races. Um, because I, I think uh, as a society, um, people have tried to exploit this divide, quite frankly, mm. um, because we're more powerful united. Mm. And so for me, I want to see these two communities come together, um, support each other, work to uplift each other um, and protect each other. And so that's what I'm committed to. Of course, no culture, right? No, no community is homogenous. Mm -hmm. um, again, I go through this all the time, right? As, as a black woman, as a half Latina woman, um, that's the case in, in any racial racial group. Um, and so I've never tried to put everyone in a box. Um, my job is just to listen to all the various communities and groups around this city to find out what it is that they need, what they want prioritized, and what they think the solutions are. Mm -hmm. And when you say that the division has been exploited, can you explain that a little bit more to me? Um, I think there's a segment of society that wants to see us against each other. Um, you're only a minority when there's fewer of you on the same page. And so um, I think that 
education, right, has been one of the things that has been used um, to fight to to maybe sprout division. Right, which we saw during the school board issues, um, the redistricting process in San Francisco. There's been a number of things that I think have flared up, and and where, um, like I said, it, it, there's been people who have searched for na- that natural divide um, rather than us being unified. Because, like I said, I think we're stronger together. Yeah, and. Is there a key way that your office might manage hate crimes differently than Boudin's office? So rather than have uh, just a single hate crimes prosecutor in our general felonies unit, um, which actually is was the structure even before Chesa, um, I, I served as the designated hate crimes prosecutor under Gascon while I also assumed a general felonies caseload. Um, my office is now shifting um, that assignment to be handled by first the, under the chief Nancy Tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she will be the chief that oversees that assignment. I also plan to add to it um, more attorneys because one is not enough, certainly in this climate. Um, I took over that assignment shortly after Donald Trump was elected and saw the number of cases spike Um and so it's a, it's a pretty hefty caseload, and it requires a significant amount of understanding of the law in order to do the charging. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make sure that we have a sufficient number of lawyers handling these cases because they are very serious cases, and they shouldn't be, you know, handled by somebody who also is carrying a very significant um, additional caseload. You just officially filed paperwork to run for district attorney in November. And I'm wondering, what are your metrics for success over the next few months? You've urged patience from San Franciscans as you ramp up in your new gig, but are there specific things you're hoping to measure before the election? Yes, I want to see a difference. I want to actually see and feel a difference. I, As you've seen, I'm all over the city every single day, um, and I want to be hearing from the community whether or not they are experiencing a difference. I want to be able to demonstrate um, that we are doing everything in our power to curtail and deter crime in San Francisco. A part of that is me being transparent about the way that we're handling cases. Um, The previous administration emphasized charging. I want to emphasize dispositions. And that doesn't just mean, again, conviction numbers. What it means is what are we actually doing with the person who has committed the crime, right? Not just did we get a conviction, but did we send them to behavioral health court if they have a mental a mental health issue? And did we see them, right? Do we see them on the path to success in that particular court? If it's a very violent, dangerous crime, right? What did we do for that per- with that person as far as a consequence? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've obviously had so much media scrutiny, including from our own newsroom. At the same time, you're juggling quite a lot. You know, you have a new office to run, a campaign now, and your mother. So I just want to also ask you, away from the policy questions, how are you managing all of that? You know, I've said it feels like I am in uh, an intense jury trial that just isn't going to end, quite frankly. Um, But, you know, you take it one day at a time. Mm -hmm. You take it one day at a time, and I do the best that I know how to do, and I do what I believe is right. Um, When I decided to become a prosecutor, I said the only way that I will ever do this work is if I do it the way that I believe it's right to be done. Um, And that 
means many things, right? It means if I think a case is unrighteous, I will not move forward on it. And it means that if I think somebody needs a certain type of accountability and and that's the way to go, whatever that might look like, um, then that's what I'll fight for. Even if, like I said, it's somebody who ordinarily we'd send to prison who deserves a different chance, I will fight to get them that other chance. And so um, that's what I wake up in the morning just wanting to feed to my office that they can do what is right and, and that I want them to do what is right and that um, I listen to the people in around San Francisco who have felt unheard um, so that we know how to serve them best. And then I go home every night and I, uh, I, I turn on my mom hat to give everything that I have left in my tank to my babies. Mm-hmm. And you just get up to do it again the next day. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins, such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Brooke Jenkins is San Francisco's district attorney. This conversation took place one day before news broke that Jenkins had been paid by a nonprofit organization that has direct ties to a conservative billionaire who funded the campaign to recall Chesa Boudin. Be sure to follow the continuing coverage of this developing story at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Special thanks to King Kaufman, Sarah Feldberg, Damian Bulwa, and Megan Cassidy for their help with this episode, and to you for listening. <laughs>